Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 460 with Chef Margot McCormick. I want that to be my legacy is, you know, I'm giving them a place to be and grow and learn and develop and into whatever they want to do and that they have that opportunity to do it here um, is a big deal to me. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. There is no time to waste in the restaurant business, especially when an opportunity comes up and you need extra capital. Cabbage created a simple, flexible way to get a line of credit of up to $150,000, apply online, and get a decision right away. Withdraw funds when you need them without reapplying. Cabbage has helped over 100,000 small businesses get started at cabbage.com slash unstoppable you can get a $50 gift card when you qualify that's cabbage with a k line of credit is subject to credit approval see terms and conditions all cabbage business loans are issued by celtic bank a utah chartered industrial bank member fdic what's sorcery sorcery is ap automation digital invoicing and time and money saved that's Sorcery. Sorcery allows you to streamline and digitize your entire accounts payable operation. Digital invoicing backed with human verification will save you countless hours of work and increase AP accuracy. Say goodbye to your file cabinets and enter the digital world. Go to getsorcery.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com or call 1-866-830-0691. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Margot McCormick. Chef, are you feeling unstoppable today? Absolutely. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. that's what we like to hear. A Nashville native, Chef Margot McCormick is a graduate of UT Knoxville and the Culinary Institute of America. In 1995, after spending some time cooking in New York City, Chef McCormick returned to Nashville as executive chef of F. Scott's. In 2001, Chef McCormick opened her own restaurant, Margot's Cafe and Bar. Five years later, she opened her second location, Marche's Artisan Food, and both restaurants are going strong to this day. I can't wait to get your story. I can't wait to find out how you got to where you are today, your values and all all that good stuff, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you have for us? Well, my staff always tells me my thing is make it taste good. Mm. Just make it taste good. Um, so that's it. How does that resonate with you? What's like the, the, the point? I mean, obviously make it taste good, but really how does that resonate? Like, how does that go deep into you? Um, I think that's the cooking that I grew up with. That was very simple that my mom prepared. I think any good dish that you're eating, be it a hot dog or a hamburger or a slice of bread, a piece of ripe fruit, just make it taste good. Um, so many people are concerned with recipes and using the teaspoon and the, you know, just getting really carried away with, ooh, you know, I put too much of this in or how much of that. And when I tell um folks who start out with me i'm just like hey we're just trying to make things taste good mm. and i find that um sometimes there's too much bravado in the cooking there are too many flavors going on if you pair back and just let the food do the, do the talking for you to you that that's what you'll get 
but some young cooks and even some that have been around the block, um, they don't taste their food. Mm. And I'm like, wait a minute, did you taste that? Because <laughs> you couldn't possibly have tasted that because it's too salty or it doesn't have any salt in it. Or, you know, uh, so that's where we start. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, you've got a palate, you've got taste buds. Just because you're not the chef or you didn't make the recipe up doesn't mean you can't influence this and taste it and tell me what you think it needs like think about it eat it would you want to eat a plate of this yeah so, so make it taste good yeah just beyond you and, know what you don't overthink it exactly i was gonna say keep it simple stupid right mm-hmm. and also in that little short brief saying you're also empowering people to like think on their own and absolutely to, to make those decisions it's very short sweet but very like impactful mm-hmm. i love it uh and i forgot to mention in the intro congratulations on the recent james beard nod best chef southeast uh good luck I thank hope you, you. Get it. <laughs> thank you and i'm sure you're very busy right now so i appreciate you taking the time with all this uh press i'm sure it's knocking on your door but uh it's good time yeah it's awesome good time. so okay where did it all start for you take me to the point where you, you started getting into the industry well i think it started way before that when i was a kid and i asked my mom just very innocently one day how to make donuts and she just went to the cabinet pulled out this fryer which i was like does everybody have a fryer in their cabinet pulled down a recipe book and we just made donuts and i was like holy crap that was cool and so I understood. And, and of course, my mom, I, I didn't realize then, but not everybody's mom knows how to make donuts. Not, no, not everybody has a fryer in their cabinet. But um, it was, it was an, an aha moment. It was a revelation. And um, so we started cooking together on the weekends. And we would just pick a recipe and make something. A lot of times it was bread. And that really sort of fostered this whole idea of um, doing it yourself, mm-hmm. figuring it out, um, making it taste good. And then there was this lapse, this gap. Um, but food was always really pivotal for us in, in our house. Mom was always doing really cool things um, for holidays, birthdays, summer. Food was just yummy and fun. And it, I just loved it. I loved to eat. <laughs> So a lot of it was about learning how to cook food that I liked Mm -hmm. and in a very kind of old fashioned way, because today not a lot of people do that. Not a lot of families cook, not a lot of moms hand recipes or cooking information down to their kids. Fast forward until, um, well, I did get a job in a snack bar when I was in high school at the pool, but again, that was about money, not really cooking. So fast forward to college, and I wanted to live off campus, and my mom said, not on my dime. If you want to do that, you can get a job, and I think she thought I wouldn't do it. But I went out to a restaurant and got a job, and um, it, I actually hated it for the first three months. More, it was horrible. back of house, front of house? I was the pantry person at a Bennigan's in Knoxville, okay. and um, if, if you don't know, Knoxville is big on football. And so we have a stadium. Well, at the time, the stadium seated 96,000 people. And so um, basically, if you were a restaurant in town on a week, a football weekend, you were going to be busy no matter what. Yeah. And um, we made so many salads and so much, I mean, of everything. It was really quite overwhelming. And, of course, we opened in the fall. So we were very, very busy the whole time. But the job really appealed to my sense of order I'm kind of OCD, I'm neat, um, I like organization, um, and I quickly moved up um, the ranks, um, and 
was like the head of the kitchen pretty much. And I, this is all while I'm going to school. So I'm taking a full load of courses and I'm working, you know, a pretty full-time schedule for a college kid. And I just loved it. Three months later, I was loving it. And so I'm um, curious when you first got there, why did you hate it? Oh, I think it was personalities and it was, um, being new to something and, um, the people just seemed really mean. Um, <laughs> the work was kind of, you know, when you're in the pantry, you kind of have the worst jobs mm-hmm. really. And you're not looked upon very favorably. And there were a lot of other people there who thought they were better than everyone else. Mm-hmm. And they all fell kind of by the wayside and the, the meek took over the world there, I guess. Um, and it was just something for me to get used to and get, get, and understand. Um, and then I think when I began to understand it and excel at it, then I was like, Oh, okay. You know, I can get into this. I can get behind this. It sounds like you acclimated and like yeah. all the stress of something new kind of mm-hmm. wasn't new anymore. And like, okay. Uh, did you work through the personalities too? Was there like an understanding eventually? Well, you know, management changed quite a bit. Um, but I did get to really enjoy the kitchen manager and, um, you know how some managers just are <laughs> nicer than others. Yeah. And so we had, we had a good bit of that. And because we were a new store, um, we had a lot of regional oversight. So there were always the big wigs in and out, mm-hmm. um, trying to, you know, put the hammer down on somebody and they have a lot of rules and regulations that you have to follow mm-hmm. in a corporate restaurant. So any big lessons from that though? I feel like there's a oh, lot absolutely. to learn. Like, I, you know, people make fun of me a lot for that experience or they did, or they thought it was funny and ironic twist. You know, again, just the organization is impeccable. Um, and as much as I don't love corporate restaurants, they certainly have training manuals, um, just all the paperwork in the right places. Um, they, you know, how to, the recipes, the um, consistency that diners are looking for. Um, organization, again, with the, the walk-in, the freezer, how you lay out the line, what's an efficient flow, um, how many people do you need to staff a kitchen, um, all those things. Temping times, um, sanitation, a lot of the health department things, you just automatically learn right away. They're real big on that. Absolutely. And a lot of people, you know, they, they, you know, kind of like, like you said, they, they'll give you jabs, right? For, but there's so much to learn about that, that consistency and all those Mm -hmm. things that you just mentioned that I'm sure you carried along with you. Did you? Um, I mean, again, make it taste good is my first thing, but yes, we're very big on, Um, When you come into the kitchen, you've got to understand the health risks, the sanitation. Um, We teach you organization. I call it, I thought I invented it. Now I'm disappointed to know that I didn't. But the economy of motion, because we have a very small kitchen here, about using your time and your space really wisely instead of spreading out and, um, and how that can benefit you and how it can sabotage you if you're not learning those things, um, keeping it clean, first in, first out, you know, 86. It's kind of like you learn the brigade. You learn the, um, the language of the kitchen. So you spent your time in college at Bennigan's or did you go to any (laughs) other restaurants while you're there? You know, I got fired, um, four years afterward by this terrible kitchen manager. Um, and then the regional manager came back and said, Oh no, no, we want you back. And I said, you know what? I'm good. And it was my senior year. And I did miss it after a few weeks and I went to another restaurant and 
kind of hung out there for a minute. And I said, you know what? I think I'm, my time in restaurants is up. I'm curious before we go further, why did you get fired? Um, I wanted to go to New York City yeah. for New Year's Eve. And a bunch of the servers and myself and a couple other people were going to go. And I had covered my shift. Yeah. But I was one of the best ones in the kitchen. And the kitchen manager did not want me to be gone selfishly and i said well i covered my shift and i'm going yeah and um he said well if you leave you're you're done i said okay i guess that's the risk i'm gonna take so what's the lesson there uh you know (laughs) i I don't i don't know if there is a lesson i think you have to be willing to um you know go out there on on a limb and if you know, the consequences will fall where they may. Yeah, you know, part of it, too, if you're the manager, the owner, and like, no one's going to, the truth of the matter is, no one's going to love your restaurant like you love your restaurant. They're not going to make your restaurant their priority. You're in college. You're, you know, like, you're, you're, your life isn't the restaurant at this point. And uh, if you want to keep these people who are the best, you have to be able to give and take a little bit. Yeah, you have to be flexible. I kind of get his perspective, too, because you can't necessarily have somebody cover your shift if they aren't at your caliber uh, because that's not a, it's not a fair trade. You know, like you're not them or they're not you. Well, it was I get flattering. That yeah. Um, but at the same time, I didn't think it was fair. And yeah. I had actually really loved working there. I was very well respected among the managers and among my peers and had worked up to that top position. And I think he was trying to guilt me and trying to play me. And I was just like, no, yeah, homie, I'm done. Homie don't play that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I went. We had a great time. It was a, an experience for sure. And, you know, I got back and he held. But then he ended up getting fired for doing that. Okay. Um, but then I didn't, I didn't want to come back after that. I had a, had a taste of freedom of not working. Yeah. I didn't need to work at that point. Um, so I did go to another restaurant and just thought, you know, I'm good. I'm just going to ride out my senior year without working. Yeah. And it was nice. It was a nice break. But then I graduated and um, ended up coming back to Nashville and got a job in a restaurant <laughs> right away because yeah. I knew I could make pretty good money. I knew I could do it. I knew I didn't want to stay in Nashville. Uh, so I found myself right back in the kitchen. So at what point did you realize that this might be your career? This might be the path that you're on for good. So I'm still not thinking that at this point, I am trying to, um, save money so I can go somewhere else. And I pursue my writing, which Mm -hmm. is what I studied at UT creative writing. And, um, People kept like throwing this cooking thing back up. <laughs> well, no, you're really good at this. So the very first job I got back here in Nashville, the uh, owner promoted me right away to a kitchen manager position. And um, and then I had another job. I had two or three restaurant jobs and um, inevitably started working for a, a guy named Jody Faison, who had many restaurants here in the 80s. And worked for him at his namesake restaurant, Faison's. And he said, you've got talent. And he promoted me to the chef of his restaurant two weeks after I started working there wow. as a lunch cook. And This wasn't your first job. This is how many jobs uh, back to Nashua? Three. Or not Nashua, Nashua. The third. Or the maybe third. the fourth. The fourth. Okay. And how much time had elapsed since coming back? Not very long. Like less than six, six months? Six months, probably. Okay. So you have four jobs, six months. You finally mm-hmm. ended at Jody's. Why were you jumping around? 
Well, the first place, um, like I said, I got the position as kitchen manager. There was a, there were a lot of changes. Then there was a fire. Oh, okay. And the general manager again, he he was quite a hot. I mean, restaurant business is pretty stressful, yeah. and you meet a lot of people who don't necessarily deal with their stress very well. Yep. So this one lunch, he just totally came down on me and yelled at me and told me to get off the line and go sit in the office and we were getting killed yeah and i was like why am i sitting in the office this is so stupid so i either made a decision right then to sit there and be punished like a child or just to leave mm-hmm. and i just left good for you i was like you know what no I'm not gonna put yeah. up with that so i left that night the restaurant caught on fire um <laughs> after and it was funny you know, honest, not, you not fire, funny. You? I did not start the fire, but he accused me of starting the fire. Right? You leave the place that's yeah. on fire. Well, the hood caught on fire okay. after I told them that they needed to have the hoods cleaned, which yeah. is part of the Finnegan's okay. training was like, yeah. hey, cleanliness and yeah. service right. your equipment and such. So the hood caught on fire and, um, yeah, they tried to accuse me or he did. Mm-hmm. No one else. It wasn't ever serious, but yeah. it was ridiculous. So I'd had that job, and then I'd had another job across the street at a country club that I definitely decided no country club for me. Um, so I quit that pretty early on, too. What was about the country club, club situation that wasn't for you? It was just, you know, going back. It's funny, going back to the Bennigans as we talk about this, I see that, well, I did like the order because there was no order there. It was very haphazardly run by a food and beverage manager who was very busy upstairs trying on clothes in the shop. And um, the people that worked there just weren't serious about what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was not a favorite favorite okay. job. So I ended up at Faison's, but I had met in the in the job that I got fired or that I left this kid who had just graduated from the Culinary Institute. Okay. And he said, "Oh, you should go there. You're very talented." And uh, I, and I thought to myself at that point, "I don't want to be a chef. All you chef people are assholes." Yeah. And um, especially, you know, going back a few years, there's really that, mm-hmm. that reputation in the industry. So I was like, no. But then when I got to Jody, um, he was like, you really ought to go to school and you really ought to. If you stay here, you're only going to know what's here now. How was it different going into Jody's restaurant versus going the first impression? The first. Well, experience? this was the very first independently owned restaurant that I'd been in. So the other there was the. um country club then the other restaurant was more like a bennigan's it was more built around a chain mentality um so this was a very independent restaurant from a guy who also had a uh, degree in in english from vanderbilt and he's a football player and he bought the restaurant in order to he wanted to be a country music writer or something to do with country music so it's it was very near uh, music row and it was early 80s and it was in an old house it had um, beautiful rooms and soft lights and um, just this really sweet place. Um, As, aside from the decor, what was the culture like? What was Jody like? How were things it, running? You know, it was very different. Um, it was very organic, <laughs> uh, loosely organized. There, I mean, there was side work and there were things that you did, of course. And he had a manager mm-hmm. who was very nice. and But it just wasn't... It, it, it definitely had this different vibe to it. Energy was completely. Yeah. yeah. Very independent, very cool. Everyone who worked there was cool. Yeah. 
it was the place that you wanted to be. And I didn't know that yeah. as a cook, but now looking back on it and after having gotten into it, I was like, oh, this is where the cool kids are. You yeah. know, this is where the shit is going on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I saw Roseanne Cash and Stevie Winwood and all these country music people. And I was like, wow, this is cool. Yeah. Yeah, this is neat. Okay. And I was doing all this food. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, I made, in fact, I still remember this dish with horror, this blueberry swordfish with blueberry fettuccine. And um, I'm like, wow, that is going to come back to haunt me one day. (laughs) But, you know, that was in the paper and it was like a big deal and um, people ate it. And I was like, wow. Um, It's like Nouvelle Cuisine-ish time. um, But Jody was very big on trying things, on being creative. Um, He went off to all these new restaurants and he actually was the one who gave me Alice Waters' first book, Pizza, Pasta, and Calzone, and, or it's the first book that I had. And I thought, my goodness, there's a woman who has a restaurant who's doing this food that I've never even heard of. And it just totally piqued my interest yeah. and my curiosity. And I thought, I need to know more about her. And so based on that, um, I did embark on this whole uh, road to culinary school and Jody introduced me to a, a representative from the Southern Restaurant Association and I got a scholarship and off I went to the CIA and um, also my aunt had given me some money she was a great uh, gourmand she loved food she and her my uncle traveled around and ate great food um, and So I thought my big plan at that point was that I was going to go to culinary school, but I was still going to New York to write my book or to write whatever. Yeah, for now, job. Yeah, Yeah. I was still going. I was somehow going to manage to be a chef and a writer at the same time. Yeah, but when they're twenty-five and you got to (laughs) just got to go to work every day and make money. So I mean, I just laugh at my naivete at that point. (laughs) But um, so I went to culinary school for you know, the 21 month program actually came back to Faison's to do my externship, um, to put some of my earned knowledge to good use. And, um, that was really fun. And a lot of the learning that I have had has been sort of self-taught, self morphed, you know, um, put into play and see if it works. Mm -hmm. Like, we had a butchering class, and the, and the butcher was like, yeah, you need to buy a whole cow. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going to yeah. work for me. Yeah. So just, you, yeah. you come to learn what's going to work for you and what's not. Um, but then I headed off into New York to find out, you know. So like up to this point, I really want to highlight some key takeaways. Uh, you, you were jumping around. First, I, I commend you on not settling. Uh, you were at these different places. You weren't happy there. You weren't. Res- you didn't respect the people. They didn't respect you. So you kind of had that standard about yourself where like, I don't need you. Like, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go find where I'm happy. Uh, and that's, I think chasing happy is a really way to become successful because when you are happy, that's when you can really lean into uh, what what your talents are. And then the, the second part of this is it sounds like you, you finally found your mentor 
mentor in Jody. Mm-hmm. He was the first person that really saw something in you and then encouraged you, right? Mm-hmm. And it's so important when you see something in somebody to let them know that they have it because they might not know otherwise. And he opened up the world to you. Yeah, he was very influential. And you know, it didn't hurt that he was like tall, dark, and handsome. People loved him. People came to the restaurant to see him. And the fact that he was giving me this attention and this encouragement just – you know, I, I still can't thank him enough to this day. Yeah, and I want to kind of lean into more about the, the you know, tall, dark, handsome, uh, all that stuff is good. But what about who he was, the values he had? Well, he What's was he just very about? charismatic, um, and he was just the guy that people wanted to be around. Now, saying that, I mean, we didn't spend a ton of time together. You know, he was out front. I'm in the kitchen. He listened to me, mm-hmm. which I thought was very important, um, and he took care of me. He respected me um, as far as, you know, money and just taking care of me in general um, and then just putting me on that path. And he also I think the other thing that I loved about the story up to this point, too, is he encouraged you to do your own thing. Mm -hmm. He didn't say, like, you know, like, don't get creative. He said, like, you know, explore and try new things. Oh, absolutely. One time he said, buy some alligator. (laughs) And I said, okay, um, I don't know what to do with that. He goes, well, just figure something out. Make it taste good, right? Yeah. I mean, pretty much. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty much. That's come from way back then. So what are the two biggest or three biggest things you learned from Jody that you carry on to this day? Um, kind of do your own thing. Don't really, I mean, he was the the first one to my knowledge. Of course, now this, I didn't have the knowledge that I have now of, of Nashville and the restaurant business, but he really went out, um, you know, on his own back in the day and did his own thing. He didn't copy anyone else. He didn't look on anyone else's page. He didn't follow a formula. He just kind of went out there and did it yeah and it, i can't remember the author but uh it's just like you know whenever when everyone else is zigging you gotta zag mm-hmm. if you really want to stand out and find a niche and and be different you you've got to like you know you can't necessarily you got to march your own beat mm-hmm. uh, that's how you find that's how you become the best at something by doing your own thing finding coming across something maybe by accident but now all of a sudden like you're onto something like hot chicken for example right mm-hmm. now you're the best at it and people come to you so cool stuff um okay so you're in new york um what was what was the big takeaway from the CIA? Anything that was key, impactful in your life at this time? I mean, I think just the history, the history of food, the history of chefs, um, the history of cooking and being taught. I think I was probably one of the last classes to really be taught by some of the French, the old French guys, we used to call them. And um, so it was hard. I think it was also the first time that I ever had to pay for something. It was all me. It wasn't my parents or, um, you know, savings account or anything like that. It was my decision to go there after having already gone to a four-year program. So I really wanted to put everything in it that I had um, to make it successful, Mm -hmm. even though I was still going to be a writer. I wanted to be super successful in the kitchen there. And and I was. I did very well. worked a lot, got, I just wanted to glean, I wanted to wring it out with the knowledge that, you know, I could get out of it. Mm-hmm. So I worked in the storeroom. I was a, an RA, a resident assistant. I was, um, I worked in the library a little bit. Um, I worked for chefs on the weekends. I went down to New York. Um, I just really tried to maximize the experience there. Cool. So you, you uh, 21 weeks, you, you get through the program. 21 months. Oh, sorry, 21 months. Uh, you get through the program, and uh, now you're looking within New York for your first, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I guess, big city role. I mean, Nashville's pretty big, I guess. but uh, 
No. Not compared to New York. <laughs> no. <laughs> so what was that like, uh, getting you know your feet wet in New York? It was really very different. Um, first, you had to find a place to live, which was incredibly different here. You just go to a place and you see if you like it and you say, okay, I'd like to have this place. And they give you a key and you're mm-hmm. done. There, it was a matter of filling out an application, of having a cashier's check, of going through a process. Um, so we had a very hard time finding a place to live. We finally found some place away from, you know, Manhattan. We were in Brooklyn. Um, that's very cool now, but it wasn't so necessarily cool then. Um, even getting a bank account was a rigorous procedure. Um, just everything in New York is a lot harder than it is here. Mm-hmm. Learning the trains, learning where you're going, um, learning a whole different culture almost because the South and the North are just very yeah. different. The North is very fast. People are very abrupt. Um, they're just business, you know, they're not so much about the pleasantries of, Hey, how are you? Yeah. Come on, sit down. Can I get you something? Mm-hmm. It's just like, boom. It's like, who are you? What do you want? Um, so trying to find a job too, when you're not in the city was difficult. And, um, so I had I waited until I got there until we moved and went to a lot of different restaurants and you know it was very competitive um, I mean it still is um, so I ended up getting a job at a place um, called Cameo on Columbus um, very unglamorous uh, as far as uh, in comparison to some of the other places um, you know La Cirque or Lutece or American uh Forgot what, the name. What year is this now? I'm just curious. This is time. 1989. Okay, so you spent six years in New York. Where was the 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 brunt of your time spent in New York after graduating? Well, so I had a, a series of rather random jobs at first, all of which were pretty unsatisfying, yeah. and it took me at least a year to even like New York. Um, I woke up every day and I was like, "It's terrible here." This is after graduating. After so graduating, yeah. um, it was just really hard. Like I said. But um, a year into it, I woke up one day. I don't know what happened. I don't know the particular specifics. But I was just like, wow, I'm in the greatest place ever. <laughs> and I just started loving it. Okay. Um, but it took me until 90-something. I don't remember when I started working at Denal. But um, I had a series of jobs that were, were fine. Yeah. I'm sure they're very similar um, to a lot of people's experiences, but nothing really high profile, just a lot of just regular cooking jobs. My plan originally was to stay for a year and get as much knowledge as I could and go home. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not exactly what happened. Um, After a year, I was like, wow, I've just barely even scratched the surface. Mm. Uh, There's a lot more for me here. Um, I'm going to stay. And eventually um, I had quit this one job at a two-star restaurant on the Upper East Side to take a job at a cafe on the Lower East Side. And that was really the transformation of my experience okay. in New York. Um, so the cafe was run by these two gay guys, this couple, Danny and Albert. And um, they hired me after they had lost one of their chefs. And actually, my mom had come to visit me. She had was from New York. That's why I was always interested in getting to New York. Um, we were having lunch in the cafe, which is, uh, I, I found it by accident, just wandering around, which is what I used to do for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Cause I was poor. 
So I'd wander around and find neighborhoods and look at things. I found this place. I was like, oh, I'm going to take my mom there when she comes. We're having lunch. She is very gregarious and talkative, and so was Danny, and they started talking. And she said, oh, don't you love it here? And this is so cute. And he was like, well, I'm not a chef. We lost our chef. And she's poking me like, my daughter's a chef, and encouraging this um, engagement. And all of a sudden, I have a job interview, and they hire me. Even though I look around and see a place that only has about 10 tables. And I'm thinking, how can they afford to pay me what I'm making at this two-star restaurant being the saucier? And, um, but he does. He actually pays me more. Okay. And so I start working continental breakfast, lunch, and brunch. And then we started doing dinner. And it just got really fun really quick Danny was a great he's very fun very funny he's an Israeli Jew raised in France and Israel and Italy so a lot of European very cosmopolitan speaks French speaks you know five different languages I'm just like wow (laughs) so somehow I start reading Julia Child MFK Fisher I start incorporating all these French themes into my food which had been pretty southern Pretty okay. American regional before. So is this the transformation you're talking about? Mm-hmm. The, the, the food was transforming? Just everything. I just felt like I was undergoing this cultural food revolution in this tiny little cafe on 90 East 10th Street. And there were all these people that were coming in that were so, like, that I got to meet. We had an open kitchen, which was very unusual at the time. Now everyone has one. Yeah. But this was the first open kitchen I'd ever worked in. So I actually got to see the customers, the guests, and... Danny, basically, his philosophy was, um, and he was not a restaurant person. They started this store as um, a store. They started the restaurant as a store. Um, Albert's experience was as a window dresser. And um, they liked to pick out things and thought they were very cool. And so they had $200 pair of candlesticks and some linens and things like that. And then his Aunt France was like, hey, this was before Starbucks and before coffee. Why don't you serve cafe au lait? And why don't you get some croissant? And why don't you do this? And one thing after another, and they were um, basically using the silver palette cookbook to make soups and to make little sandwiches and salads. And then it just sort of blossomed into this thing. Yeah. And so that's when I showed up and, and I was like, and I just took the ball and ran with it. Nice. And um, that's when I started reading all these other things. But he was like, Margo, just pretend you're having a, a party every day and you've invited all these people and it's your house and you're cooking for these friends. And cause I was a little bit shy. I mean, pe- most people I think that work in kitchens are a little bit more reserved. They like the door, they mm-hmm. like the wall, yeah. you know, they like doing what Head they're down. doing, yeah. but they don't really want to talk to everybody out here. But you know, that's when I started to realize this whole like symbiosis and um, this nurturing that, played into what my mom had done and like watching people eat your food and getting really excited about that and them being excited and forming that bond with people was just really cool. Yeah. And, um, so it just, I don't know. It was just, and it's a very French thing. Um, these ideals. Um, so distill that, like really get to the the essence of that. Did he teach you to kind of slow down and to like look up into well, what's the lesson there? Like the, the no, I think I just watched him interact with people. Yeah. I've watched people and he was very similar to Jody, but I mean, completely different. 
but they flocked in and they wanted to be in his company and they wanted to be in his house, mm. you know, and he considered the restaurant to be his house. He would kick people out for putting their feet on his weaker. He called wicker, weaker. Get your feet off my weaker. Um, <laughs> but they loved him. And I was yeah. like, this is awesome. And, and I loved him and we, I, I mean, just had a great relationship and, um, you know, and then we're buying food every day at the green market on 14th Street. And we're buying these bouquets of fresh flowers. And he taught me about, you know, aesthetics and like what was a doily and what was a couch, you know, yeah. and about spending money on China. Mm. And, and I, this is one of the first things I noticed when I walked in here is the the, the, the attention to detail you have and like the, the little things. Sorry mm-hmm. to interrupt. No. But beautiful. Well, this is when I when we started making this building, this space, I called it making my own denial. Yeah. Because it's very much um, not a ripoff, but an homage to what he had mm. there and also what Jody had here. Um, it's not a house. I would have preferred a house, but it's not a house, but it's, it's very, you know, urban. It's a gas station, by the way. Um, an old gas station. <laughs> and, um, so it's sort of a melding of the two influences that I had, um, coming up. Cool. Okay. So if, if there, I mean, I think we kind of distilled the, the lessons you took away from Danny. Um, was that the last job you had before, coming back to Nashville? Yes. Well, no, but yes. Okay. So why did you leave New York? Albert died of AIDS. It was awful. Oh man. And, um, Danny kind of went in a tailspin and I sort of held the restaurant Mm. down and it just got to a point where I think I wanted more, um, from him. And after three years, I was thinking of my own place and um so you were there with them for three years mm-hmm. okay so you you talked about transforming how are you different now after this three years about like it, it how well i think a- i definitely got a little cocky okay and um we had gotten some new york times some okay. new york magazine a lot of um european Confidence, press maybe. yeah and people were you know we were doing these dinners now and they're very popular we were doing big numbers we were doing a lot of business and i was like and and also people were telling me like, oh my God, your food's amazing. Mm. And you know, you're, you're getting yeah, a little confidence, maybe a little too much. Yeah. And people are like, you know, you should open your own restaurant and Danny should make you a part. Well, even his own family was like, you need to compensate her. Like she's taking care of your business yeah. and I needed a new stove and I needed this. And you know, he was grieving and it was just, yeah. it was really kind of, a, a, it was a difficult time for everybody. Um, but in the end I made the decision to leave um, there and to move upstate, I had purchased a house and moved upstate and worked in an, actually a series of, of other places for about a year before I said, you know, I'm not happy up here. I'm going to go back to New York. And that's when my mom said, Hey, would you come home for the holidays? And while I was here, she said, why don't you look for a job here? Mm. Because I wanted them to come back to New York. And she would, they were like, no, we have lived here for 40 some odd years at this point. We're not coming back yeah, this north. Is this yeah. is home. And um, she actually sort of, uh, it's not really a bribe, but she pulled out, she keeps, she kept everything. She pulls out the um, essay that I wrote for the Southern Restaurant Association scholarship money. And, and right there it said, to return to the South and make Nashville a dining destination. Oh, man. She goes, this is what you could do. And, you know, she threw down the challenge. 
So I went around to all these restaurants to try to get a job, and that's how I landed at F. Scott's. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. So first of all, I'm loving this conversation. You're going into great detail and really dropping some advice and some knowledge that we can all take and apply to our own lives. So you come back to Nashville. Uh, did you have an ego, do you think, at this point, because you're the, you are the you had all this experience? Oh, well, yeah, definitely. And when I went around to the to the restaurants and I couldn't believe they weren't hiring me, I was like, wait a second. I just came from New York where I was working for all these people and done all these things and you don't seem to care. And I was like, wow, y'all are dumb. And it was so antiquated. It was like 20 years had gone by and nothing had changed. And people's menus were still the same as when I left and they're serving food out of season. And um, I just thought, wow. Um, And also when you live in New York, you get brainwashed into thinking that, I mean, you are in the center of the world. You are truly, Mm. but you do get brainwashed into thinking that that's the only thing that matters. So definitely when I got home, I was like, Oh, New York is so much better than here. Mm -hmm. And I had a dishwasher at F Scott's who told me one time, he goes, Margo. And so I would say, I would, I would complain and moan and groan. And I'd say, I'm, I think I'm going to have to go back to New York. I just don't think I can live here um, anymore. And he told me once, he said, Margo, if you leave, you're just going to be part of the problem and you're not going to be part of the solution. So another person kind of throwing down the challenge. And I think that that was like a wake up call for me. Yeah. Well, there's another part of this too. Like if you take what you learn, you, you have what you, you have this, these skills, this knowledge, uh, the idea the knowledge of what is possible, it's way easier for you to be the best in Nashville than it is to be the best in New York city. Mm-hmm. And you have the market, right? Uh, so there is a lot of sense to, to, you know, bring what you have to a new market. Maybe the, the market's not quite ready for you, but, you you know, the, the I feel like the potential is greater in a city like Nashville for you than it was in New York City. Is that safe to say? Well, it definitely felt safer for me coming from here, being taken care of by the community yeah. than being another nameless, faceless person yeah. in New York who, you know, when I went to look at property, it's like, Twelve thousand dollars a month rent. Oh, I'm like, man. that's a lot of hamburgers, yeah. you this know, is in the 90s. or whatever. Yeah. You know, I'm like, holy mackerel, that's just a lot of money. I was just too. I, I don't think I would ever have done it in New York because it was too intimidating. Yeah. And there wasn't enough support system for me. Yeah. Um, so definitely coming back, you know, you there's an advantage for yeah. sure. And I mean, clearly, I think that's why there are a lot of people coming to Nashville now to try to you know, make their own fortunes in the restaurant business. So you, you come back in 95 and you open your first restaurant in 2001. What were the big things you're doing during this time that prepared you uh, for success in opening your own restaurant? Well, I think a huge important thing was to just to get back to Nashville and figure out what was going on. Okay. So the guys that the guys I worked for at F Scott's um, were very happy to have me be a little marquee mm-hmm. player. Um, they put me out there uh, in the public eye we did a lot of dinners. We did a lot of benefits. Um, and they were only too happy to, to market me that way. Um, so that was important. And it was important for me to get out in the dining room and meet people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was important for me to be able to do my food. Mm-hmm. And which they let me have control over the menu. Um, so we stopped serving tomatoes in December and asparagus in January and changed the desserts and changed the menu seasonally 
and people were very responsive um, to what I was doing. So that was a plus, you know, that was a positive step. Um, so I got to kind of re reintroduce myself to Nashville and them to me. So I met the purveyors. I met, you know, the delivery people. I met the cooks. Um, I went to the other restaurants. I found out what was kind of what, what the vibe was like then. So I could start looking for a place of my own and figuring out, you know, where that would be and what it would look like. Beautiful. So at what time did the vision of your own place really come into frame for you? I mean, I, you know, it's kind of weird, but I think I've always had it in your head. And then when you see it, you just know it. Um, so my sous chef um, at the time, at F. Scott's, was dating a fellow over here in this neighborhood. And I knew this neighborhood was going to be where I ended up. Mm-hmm. It's where a lot of people were and it was affordable. And I wanted to be away from everything else. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to be in a strip mall. I didn't want to be um, in some of the other areas just because I wanted to be out outside the box I wanted it to be urban um, I wanted it to be like that New York experience and this is pretty much it um, at the time I felt a connection to this neighborhood for some reason so she found this building and um, we came and looked at it and I thought I can see it I can see the bar I can see the kitchen I can see the two dining rooms this is it so what was it? How, how did you surround yourself with the right people to make it happen? Did you have the money or were you saving? Oh, gosh. Away or? No, <laughs> I didn't have any money. Okay. Um, the, the fellas at F. Scott's and I worked out a deal where if I stayed there for a certain amount of time, I would have this cash bonus at the end, Okay. which was great. And then I did manage to save some other money. But we did this space for $150,000. How much of that did you were? What pers- I guess... How much did you come up with there in your own, or how much did you have to borrow? Was none. none. We didn't borrow any money. Wow, that's huge. So this this other fella, he introduced himself to me, and he'd done another restaurant here locally, and um, we sort of hit it off, and we started. We just jumped in. I just jumped in with him. Didn't know him. Didn't. I don't recommend this, by the way, <laughs> um, for other people. But um, and he convinced me that we could do it for fifty thousand dollars, and I was like, hmm. Uh, there must be something I don't know about construction because yeah. that just seems really low to me. But we just dove right in. So and I'm, I'm looking around. I'm curious how much uh, have you changed it since 2001? Or is this basically... Not a whole lot. Wow. We got these new tables this past year. And, I mean, we have to get new things here and there. But um, it's pretty much like we did it originally. We've painted, obviously, and redone the floor a couple of times we we count the years by how many doors we've had or how many doorknobs we've had to replace or (laughs) you know how many light bulbs we've changed but it's pretty it's it's held up pretty well so this is 2001 so aside from the you know inflation what was it about this space that enabled you to do it so inexpensively well our landlord at the time um, was super great and he is a huge restaurant advocate and uh, his dad John Edgerton wrote about food and cooking so he had this um, just this like for it and just want to make this neighborhood something um, his first building was the Bongo Java building around the corner and then he got this and he interviewed me like it was crazy he was like well what do you know how to do and I don't think he wanted to give me the building. 
he he kind of was like, I kind of see a Mexican restaurant here. Um, but after um, him finding out about me and talking and doing the whole thing, um, we, we leased the building from him. And so that was really important because he actually helped us raise the, raise the roof and put on a new roof and kind of get us in the, going in the right direction okay. um, to be able to do what we wanted to do here um, so we could have that second story, a second floor um, for the seating required so we could make some money. Um, but he's really, he owns so many buildings in this neighborhood. Um, he's really revitalized it. But we were the first sort of, I don't know, marquee business. Um, so we got a great deal on the rent, first of all. Yeah. I mean, we were definitely looking for rock bottom something. Yeah. Um, because we didn't have any money. We just didn't have the money. We weren't these investors. Like, like, like I said, we didn't have a big bank behind us or big pocketbooks behind us. So we did, I mean, I painted that ceiling, you know, I've painted this floor. Um, I continue to do like the gardening and a lot of the maintenance work. Um, so what's the lesson there? I feel like the lesson there is just start where you can. Uh, and you don't have to go huge. You don't have to have the, the massive, gigantic restaurant that you see all these people having. Like you start where you can on um, the modest space. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that... Anything else also wanted to control the overhead. Yeah. So not only seeking out a rent that I could afford, um, but also a space that I could work in. Mm. Like at F. Scott's, I needed a line of 10 people in order to run that kitchen. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't want to have to try to staff 10 people every night. So I staff three mm. or sometimes like tonight, two. Mm-hmm. Then I've got a couple of dishwashers and I'm done. Mm-hmm. So, um, especially now with the labor pool, the way it is, it's too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a small kitchen, so I don't have to move very far. Mm-hmm. Like in New York, you had to go <laughs> up a, le- a flight of stairs, <laughs> flight of stairs yeah. or down a hallway to yeah. get your mise en place yeah. or in one place I worked at an elevator and I don't have that kind of time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love the way that things happened. It happened really organically. We had a lot of bumps in the road, but we persevered. What were some of those big bumps? Like, what were the big challenges getting started? Well, codes is huge, and taking a building that wasn't necessarily a restaurant to begin with, and Mm -hmm. and the grease trap, the water requirements. Um, But the the partner that I chose actually turned out not to be such a great fit, and um, we ended up bringing in a third partner in. And um, I think he thought that he would be his partner and they would dominate me, Mm. but it didn't happen that way. And so he ended up being bought out. So really early on, we had some issues and that was a kind of a financial disaster for us. What's your advice there? Like if you could go in and do it all over, knowing what you know now, what would you have done to protect yourself? You know, I don't know because the one thing that I that I do credit him with is that I took this leap. Yeah. And I think that's what you have to do. And sometimes it's super uncomfortable. And I think somewhere in the back of my mind I knew that he was bullshit, but I did it anyway and took the leap and then it was just all me. It was like I'm going to make this work. Mm-hmm. I'm because I know how to work. I believe in what I'm doing. I believe in what the product is. I'm just going to do it. What was the uh, the dynamic of that partnership? Was he front of house, you were back of house? Well, so he, we brought in this third guy, and they were both front of the house, and I was the back of the house, and I was like, no one knows you people. You know, this is going to 
this hinges on me mm-hmm. and my talent and my sweat. And um, so I definitely had more of a percentage than they did, um, but not much. And um, it, it just, he was just super flaky. He didn't have a restaurant background. He had an art background, which is, I'm not judging. Yeah. But you have to know, you know, more than... Originally, what was it about him that made him appeal to you as a good partner? You know, he's a swindler. He's a swift talker. And like, let me tell you what we can do. And just his confidence and his air. And he was very charming and he's handsome. And um, I think he said yes to me a lot. Yeah. You know, yeah, we'll do that. Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. You know, it, it's so funny that you're mentioning this right now. Uh, I recently learned the definition of a con man. Uh, and it's it's short for a confidence man. And it's not their confidence. It's, uh, it's your confidence in them that mm-hmm. they play on. And they promise all these things. Yeah. And they say you can do this. And we're going to do this. We're going to be great. And this mm-hmm. is going to happen. This is going to happen. And they, and they convince you. And they make all these promises. Maybe they have the intent to do those things. But then they realize that, like, I can't do all these things. So maybe there wasn't the negative intent. But, like, you really got to be careful. If it sounds too good to be true, sometimes it might be too good to be true. Uh, and really, like, challenge whether this person, if they, you know, can do what they say they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's what a con man does. They, they, they play off your confidence in them. Definitely. So that partnership dissolved, but the, the fellow that he brought in, he and I retained a partnership for 10 years, no longer than that, 13 years. Yeah. And then I recently just finished buying him out because he just wanted to move on and do something else. We parted ways amicably Although it was weird. I mean, it's you have the same partner for a long time and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. What are you, uh, you're not here anymore. Why is that? Um, so how long were you with uh, this gentleman before you parted ways? Yeah, 13 years. Wow. Yeah. So this is something recent. Um, well, we just finished our buyout agreement last this past October. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, okay, so you're you're open, you're doing some things. You're How, how did you evolve the business like what did Margot's look like then what what did it look like you know is, was there an evolutionary process it you know we were slammed from the from the get-go yeah the minute we opened and you have to kind of understand nashville and understand 2001 to understand you know kind of what i'm saying but restaurants didn't open every day then mm-hmm. there might be a new restaurant once every three years mm-hmm. um so we also fortunately for me we had this good F. Scott's Press and F. Scott's following and um, people were we also had the football stadium as a sort of a beacon like if you knew where that was mm-hmm. which everybody did then you knew that we were 10 blocks down on the left and it wasn't a big scary place to go because when you looked out the window in 2001 there weren't really any cars Okay, it was pretty quiet the gas station was here, the hardware store was here this bar was very small and everything else didn't exist wow so we were pretty lonely okay. over here. And if cars were coming, they were coming here. Um, so it was pretty cool. on the street? Oh, yeah. You could okay. park anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you could park anywhere back then. <laughs> there was parking everywhere. Yeah. Um, so it was great. We did 120 covers on our very first night. Wow. We got a standing ovation. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, lots of great comments and everything from the neighborhood people. Um, and then it just went on from there. We were slammed every single night for almost two years straight Mm -hmm. and then we had a chance to breathe and then we decided to do brunch and um so 
then we started attracting more people because people would come in the daytime and see, oh, it's not so scary over there. We know how to get there now. And so then more and more and more. And then we opened um, Marche, and then that was big, big, big. So maybe this is a good point. Uh, do you want to take your jacket off? Are you getting hot? I saw yeah. That. Yeah, we can, can pause it. Yeah, it's get comfortable, please. I don't want my zipper to make a lot of <laughs> take, noise. Yeah, I understand. So uh, comfortable? Mm-hmm. All right, good. So uh, you just mentioned Marseille. So when did you know it was time for a second location? Well, we were just getting killed here all the time. And when we originally found this space, my original envision was to do something breakfast, breakfast, lunch, dinner. Mm -hmm. But we didn't have a back door and we don't have a walk-in. So I was like, where are we going to put all that food? So we're naturally just going to be looking for some other space um, to do all these other ambitious, you know, things. And uh, we looked at a couple of spaces up here. Um, further down the road and then our same landlord March Edgerton got the space that Marche is in which used to be the switching station um, telephone building and we're like this is going to be perfect the I mean I'd go down the road every night from here and see it I'm like that's the spot that's the spot I could just see maybe a thousand feet from here yeah not that far right down the block so I was like that's it um and so he took over the building and we signed the lease and he did the build out. But yeah, we were getting creamed at brunch. We're getting like 225 brunches. And um, for dinner, we thought, well, what if we had a little overflow spot where people could wait, have a drink, do a snack and then come to dinner or better yet, what if they just start doing dinner too? Mm. And so at one point, yeah, it was just like everybody was doing everything. So that kind of served as uh, you wanted to do the breakfast. You, and mm-hmm. now you never did breakfast in this space, did you? We that, did brunch, brunch here, okay. but On not Sundays? breakfast or lunch. Yeah, Sunday. Sundays. And we've just recently stopped and started doing Sunday dinner as part of a, another evolution. Um, because now that there's so many other restaurants in town and everyone's doing breakfast, lunch, and dinner and brunch, that um, our brunch business has slowly been kind of eaten into. So we're like, what if we let them do brunch and we do dinner all the time Mm -hmm. and there's no place in the neighborhood for sure and hardly any place in Nashville really um, that serves Sunday dinner. So right out of the bat, we're doing, we're blazing away Sunday dinner. Okay. So basically I was going to ask how, how you started to manage being in two places at one time, but it sounds like you were in both places. You just, after you wrapped up here, you... Or there, you would come here, or how did no, that work? No, I spent. I had a great crew when we opened Marche. I took a chef from here and I took a manager from here, mm-hmm. put them down there, and I spent about six months down there working. Yeah, during the day, on and off, and then coming here, um, and then letting um, the chef kind of go. Okay, but again, the very first day we opened the door down there, it was crazy. Yeah. I mean, we it completely exceeded our expectations from day one. So we had to to gear up better. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to better prepare. And our big kitchen down there that we thought was so big became instantaneously small. Yeah. And our big space, instantaneously small. And it's actually been a learning process from day one. It's so different from what we do here. Um and it's 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 actually kind of a constant um, kerfuffle that we have with them. <laughs> so, 
you were, uh, did you just give them free range down there or did, was that, how, what, what no, was your No, I wanted them to understand how I uh, approach food and, and cooking and um, to understand the vision of what I was trying to do down there. Um, but a lot of my actual inspiration has come from a place called Le Pan Quotidien, which I thought I discovered in Provence before we opened Marche. And have come since to realize, well, while I was there, realized that it was a chain and that there are several of those in New York and probably in L.A. and San Francisco and Belgium. But it's a really sweet um, sort of breakfast focus, lots of tartines, fruit, real healthy. Um, They have this bread basket that we pretty much just copied. Um, But really fun. And so actually my manager was on the trip with us. And so she saw... Okay. The, the cafe and came back with that in her mind also. And then we, of course, um, use our local ingredients to prepare things. So we have grits, which they would never have mm-hmm. in the south of France. Um, we have other th- biscuits and gravy. And, but, and then we took the French toast that we made here and we put it down there. And then we did the omelet and the crepe and, um, the tarts that I used to make at Danau and the French toast is a recipe that I developed at Danau mm. with them. Um, and just it's seasonally driven. It's fresh. It's local. We try to do a mix of sandwiches and salads, but kind of things that are, yeah, very French inspired too. Beautiful. So here's one thing I really wanted to talk to you about while I had your time. And one of the things that really stands out about who you are is the influence you've had on other people. I mean, how many people have come from your restaurant and gone on to open their own restaurants or be an executive chef in another restaurant? Can, do you know? Have you kept count? Well, there are the ones that people know about, <laughs> yeah. like Tandy Wilson yeah. and um, Jason McConnell was my sous chef at F. Scott's. And he now has a whole empire out in Franklin, Tennessee. Okay. Um there is a gentleman named Ryan Bernhardt who has his own place just now about a year or so called TK over here in the neighborhood. Um, but there are other people that, that people don't know about. And um, like Cassidy Salas is out in California somewhere doing wonderful work. David and Deanna Talbert worked here a long time ago in the, in the, in the beginning, in the way back time machine, I call it. They have their own place now called Essie and Olive Pop Shop in uh, Lenore, North Carolina. So I think everyone uh, just about has attained a really nice level of success. Um, one of my pastry chefs is now the pastry chef in charge of all the Acme um, productions. Even people who aren't in the field anymore are doing really well. And I think that's something that I've taken on here is I want that to be my legacy mm. is you know, I'm giving them a place to be and grow and learn and develop and into whatever they want to do and that they have that opportunity to do it here um, is a big deal to me. So you have helped people learn and develop and grow. Mm -hmm. So what do you know to be true about your ability to do that or what we should know when it comes to helping develop the next generation? What, what, What can you share with us? Well, I think some of it is definitely the experience that I had from Jody Faison mm-hmm. and from Danny um, Saltiel and just letting you get in there and do your thing mm-hmm. and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Like Tandy developed the Salumi, a lot of it here. And um, by me just letting him trial and error what he was doing mm-hmm. and figuring that out. 
um, and just cooking good food and seeing, yeah, what worked and what he liked to do. It's the same thing I've done with all of my sous chefs or anybody that really shows any interest. Mm-hmm. I'm like, give me an idea. Let's do it. Because I had ideas in New York that were continually just squashed mm-hmm. by the chefs. And I understand now why. You know, it's a huge risk. It, you're, it's a lot of stress. You're looking at numbers. You're looking at your reputation. Why are you going to let some punk, culinary punk, come in here and tell you an idea? Yeah. You know, and that's what they probably live for, to do their own ideas. But I guess I'm not that selfish. I guess I really enjoy the um, collaboration yeah. with other people and the kind of ping-ponging off. I, I feel like we've had some really great ideas come through that. Um, I also just feel a little bit like a teacher, and I'm a mom now. So um, I have a 7-year-old boy, and I, I do find myself sort of momming people. Yeah. Um, cause I'm, I could probably be everyone's mom here except for one person. Um, I also am big in sports. I came up really loving sports and playing a lot of sports and thought I might be a coach one day. And this is like coaching a team Yeah. and it's coaching people and it's not just coaching people on how to cook, but coaching at the front life. of the house team and coaching life. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm curious, a lot of people um, would say, why wouldn't you retain some of that talent? Why wouldn't you try to keep that talent in-house and maybe partner with them on other operations? Did that ever cross your mind? Was there ever an opportunity? You know, to- I tried to do that with one guy, and it didn't. he didn't want to pursue it. Mm. But inevitably, everybody wants their own thing. Yeah. You know, they kind of want to cut the apron string yeah. and go out and do their own thing and say, hey, yeah, I did work for you, but this is me. And I totally get that. Yeah. Um, and also... I try to retain them for as long as I can and mm-hmm. make them as happy as I can. But I know what it's like to want to follow your dream. Yeah, you did the same thing. So I want that for everybody. Yeah. And ultimately, they'll be happier with that. I'll be happier with that. So when people are ready to move on and do their own thing or to go someplace else and be the executive chef, how do you help them? Do you coach them through? Like You know, I try to give them as much as they want. Sometimes I think, again, it's like this thing where I need, I need to do this by myself. Yeah. Or I don't want your help. Um, I don't want your influence. You know, I don't want them to say it was you and not me. Yeah. And I get that too. Um, but I'm always around for advice, for shoulder, for praise, for, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So anything up to this point, Chef Margot, we have not covered yet. Any, you know, any lesson that you want to teach anything that was at the tip of your tongue that we didn't get into that you want to dive into now while you have this this time the free-flowing portion of the conversation i i don't know i think i'm good all right beautiful um so we're gonna take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to be unstoppable most restaurants require a little extra capital from time to time it happens right uh when you need funding to like renovate or buy equipment or manage cash flow you don't have time to just track down financial statements or wait weeks for a decision. And that is where cabbage can help. Cabbage gives small businesses access to a line of credit of up to $150,000. And if you apply online, you'll get a decision right away, which is pretty awesome. Since cabbage is a line of credit, you can take the exact amount you need. You'll never have to reapply to take out additional loans and you only pay for the funds you use. Yeah, you're impressed, and I haven't even gotten to the impressive part. Cabbage has helped more than 130,000 businesses from every industry with over $4 billion in funding. Like, awesome. 
Cabbage is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau and was named a Forbes Top 100 company not once, but twice. Check out Cabbage at Cabbage with a K dot com slash restaurant unstoppable and you'll get a $50 gift card when you qualify. That's Cabbage, K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash restaurant unstoppable. Line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. All Cabbage business loans are issued by Celtic Bank, a Utah chartered industrial bank member FDIC. Everyone loves manually processing invoice after invoice, right? Like, it's it's the best. Not really. Uh, just the sight of a filing cabinet can be enough to make you sick. But it doesn't have to be that way. With Sorcery, there's no more manually processing invoices by hand and no more cutting check after check. With Sorcery, you can organize all of your accounts digitally, scan your invoices, and pay your vendors with just one click. It's easy. Sorcery offers fully managed accounts and statements reconciliation, so you no longer spend hours on the phone with your vendors and banks. That stinks. You now have the peace of mind knowing your accounts are being taken care of, and you can get back to work doing what you love, running great, nay, unstoppable restaurants. Go to GetSorcery.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com or call one 800 Six six eight three zero zero six nine one, and say goodbye to your old filing cabinet and hello to the digital world with Sorcery AP Automation. We're back, and the first question I have for you is: What is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Um, work ethic. Mm, beautiful. And what is your biggest weakness? Probably the work ethic. Okay. Probably dive into not. That. <laughs> not. Um, you know, del- you know, getting other people to- asking for help, things like that. Okay. Uh, what is one question or thing you look for during the interview process? I think I look for someone who has that hospitality thing. How do you, you know, know they who- have it? Well, this is longer than a one-word answer, but it's um, fine. You know, I spend eight hours a day with these folks because I'm here. I work a regular schedule. So I work with them more than I spend time with my wife or my kid every day. So I want to have a good time. Yeah. I want to have fun. Yeah. I ask them to tell me jokes. Okay. Um, We talk about what kind of music they like to listen to. We talk about what they like to do outside of work because I'm interested in the person, Mm. not necessarily the worker. I can teach you how to do the work, but I can't teach you to be nice or fun or... Uh, any of those things so i'm looking for sort of um a key or a clue that we're going to get along social emotional intelligence yeah and that they're going to get along with the rest of us because having a tight crew here we're a very small restaurant we're uh, literally very small and very small so we want to we want to groove awesome so what is your biggest challenge today um, probably, you know, a little bit of staffing. Um, although I think that we've had a, just recently in the last week, um, a handful of restaurants close. Mm-hmm. So we've seen an uptick in, um, applications, but, um, this is like, uh, one of my sous chefs several years ago said, you know, I asked him, I'm going to put an ad in the paper. What should it say? And they said, unicorns wanted. We are not looking for the same old person. Yeah. I don't care what your piece of paper says. I don't care where you've been. I'm looking for that uniqueness that is, I guess, a unicorn. Um, so 
we have a hard time finding that right person sometimes, but when we do, we are keeping for a long yeah. time. So I'm really curious. I'm happy you, you brought this up because you came in 2001 mm-hmm. where there is an abundance of p- potential people that you can mentor and develop. Have you seen a difference in the workforce, uh, the work ethic? Absolutely. Okay. Um, and I hate to come down hard on the millennials, but there's an attitude out there now of like, what are you going to do for me? Mm and what's in it for me and it's a lot of giving on my part as an employer and not so much as what are you going to do for me as an employee yeah. um, even we had a young uh, not so young lady in here um, not that long ago who just seemed very confused about what her role as an employee was and what my role as an employer was and that I needed to give her a certain schedule and a certain amount of money right off the bat and um, she was confused about what a stage was, and it was very shocking. Yeah. Very shocking. And she was somebody who was in the culinary field. Did she have a culinary background? She did not have a – well, she had even a, I guess, a higher pedigree than a culinary background, and so I was really surprised. She didn't know what a stage – was she stage – she didn't know that she had a stage for you, or she didn't know other people were She didn't understand stage. that she needed to stay longer – that when you know you were done when I told you you were done yeah. kind of thing yeah. or it was just very odd she was looking for the, the clock the punch I, I, I don't know it was very odd yeah okay um, so how are how have you evolved with this new market of people to, to employ how are you different now because of that you know I've had to change some of my old-fashioned ways okay um, I used to not like piercings of any sort except for the ears. I used to make people cover up their tattoos. Um, I used to not like short skirts mm-hmm. or belly midriff sorts mm-hmm. of things or underarms. And people would, all the girls would tell me, but I can't find a shirt that covers my arm or this or that or the other. So I think I have become a little bit more hip mm-hmm. to what is mod what is modern Mm -hmm. although i still have my certain standards because i think once you start uh, you know sacrificing those you're sort of sabotaging yourself what standards have you hung on to well you have to be on time you can't lie to me you can't steal yeah i mean it, it sounds silly but it's just a basic moral code yeah. But a lot of people don't have that. So it sounds like you uh, recognize that uh, culture has changed. Mm-hmm. And people, what what used to be you know unacceptable 10 years, 15 right. years ago, is the cultural norm today. Uh, and you can't do anything about mm-hmm. that. But you can still be a good person. You can still have values. You can still have character. You can still have uh, those human qualities. You, you're not sacrificing on the human qualities. You're no. sacrificing on the, the cultural uh, mm-hmm. today's standard norm. Right. Cool. Um, okay. So – Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team, a way to be. Well, I like people to make a contribution when they're here. Mm -hmm. I don't like this to be the clock punching situation. So I'm like, figure out something you can do that you can bring to the table and do it. Okay. And for my front of the house staff, it's um, about engagement and connection with guests. Because this is a very intimate place. Mm -hmm. It's a very personal experience for me. And so I want that to spill over with the dining room staff and with also the kitchen. Okay. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your staff? So, well, I guess that's yeah. kind of it right there. So just basically engage on a human level. Mm-hmm. How do you teach somebody to do that? Well, that's where the hiring comes yeah. back in and you look for the right people to do that. And sometimes, you know, you get burned or you don't know or you, you figure out later that, hmm, 
they were not really fit for this job or some people blossom into it. Okay. They just need to be in the right environment. Um, but you know, we're, we're dealing with people and it, it, I used to say this isn't rocket science or this isn't brain surgery. You know, this isn't an important enough job, but it really is, especially in our environment today and our culture today, we provide so much for some people and we don't realize it. And sometimes we don't get to know our guests as well as we should. And we've had a couple of situations where people have died and we feel so mm. empty because we're like, they were here every Friday and yeah. we didn't make an, we didn't make more of an effort to connect with yeah. them. And so that's something that I've personally said, Hey, I want you guys to do that more. So you empower these people to connect with your guests. Uh, but I'm curious, what, what does that connection look like in your eyes? How, what is a true connection with somebody? That's a deep I question. I mean, we have people <laughs> coming and bringing gifts yeah. to the employees and remembering their kids' birthdays, their birthdays. They've gone out to dinner mm. with them. I have a regular couple that took the whole kitchen out for dinner once. Um, and that's happened on a number of different – with different people – They'll be on vacation in the same place. Well, hey, let's get together for dinner. Okay. And I feel like that's just taking it to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. So it's transformative. It's not that transactional mm -hmm. relationship where mm -mm. you just, you know, I'm here for a meal. Right. I'm going to pay you. You're going to feed me and give mm -hmm. me the food. It's like there's a real human connection there. Right. I love it. All right. The next question, share one book that will make us a better person or restaurant operator. Well, I think the person part, and sometimes it bleeds over into the restaurant business, is the book um, The Good Earth by Pearl Buck. Okay. And it's all about this ancient civilization and having, like, three seeds and trying to plant them. And, like, I'm just bewildered at how we have even continued as a culture based on that book and how hard it is to grow crops and, and being dependent on nature and and really nothing else. They had nothing. And how we survive from there is beyond me. Um, so that's been a profound read for me. And um, as far as professionally, and, and I take some of that professionally too, because obviously we, we rely on um, farmers to grow our food. And without that, we wouldn't exist as a restaurant, much less a society. But then as uh, professionally, I think any of any of the Zingerman's books, mm. any of um, Ari's books are just like amazing reads and they're so positive and they're so full of information and so full of ideas and real things that you can do like immediately. Yeah, absolutely. And they're, his books are so easy to read. They're like all mm -hmm. they're short essays. Right. And, and like you can pick up that book and open any chapter and start there. Uh, and he, he just shares how he, the, you know the, how he sees the world is basically mm -hmm. what that that book is. I think the first one is how to build a great business, then how to be a great leader, then how to lead oneself. And mm -hmm. I think he just came out with another one. I can't remember. Uh, yeah, uh, there's a whole handful of. Yeah, them. there's like at least, and then like the, the service standards. Mm -hmm. uh, but what was the? But if you could pick one lesson from Ari Weinswag that you did not have, but prior to picking up his book, what would it be? Gosh, I. I'm not sure that I didn't have it, but it's, and it's things, I think it's just the way it's organized mm. that I like and that it, that someone, it, it's validating mm -hmm. that someone else shares some of these same ideas and opinions and that they've been able to put it in practice. Yeah. I think that's the cool thing because I've been like, um, had these same things, but it's like, how do I get from A to B? Mm. And, um, and some of it is just 
doing the right thing, even though it might not, like we provide insurance for all our employees and yeah. it costs me a lot of money every month, but I do it anyway yeah. because it's the right thing to do. Absolutely. Um, Beautiful. All right. Share one online resource or tool that you leverage. Yeah, that was a tough one for me because I'm not a huge um, computer person. Okay. Um, but I think, and this is going to be shocking for people who know me, but I think social media, and especially Instagram now, yeah. um, my sous chef Hadley, my chef de cuisine is constantly, you know, showing me like, and it's it. They're very cool for plating yep. ideas, and then just um, keeping up with other people's menus yeah. and. Um, just what's going on out just there in the world. Spur creativity and uh-huh. inspiration, right? Yeah. So what's one trick that you've picked up that you're doing on Instagram that is, you've seen like a, a, you know, is there anything that you're doing on Instagram that is causing traction for you guys? Or is it just for the, the, the sole purpose of looking to see what other people are doing in that inspiration? No, I mean, it's, you know, when we put our food up there or more even, not necessarily our food, but things that are happening. Yeah. Um, it, I think the personal pictures are better um it definitely has a lot of a lot of legs yeah beautiful all right what is one piece of technology you've adopted in your restaurant i'm curious like maybe over the since 2001 have you evolved have you started leveraging leveraging different tools and technologies open table any reservation platforms or anything of that nature we're kind of we're kind of weak in that department i'd like a new can opener though okay um (laughs) yeah uh we well we have we've adopted the social media um, all around and that's been relatively I mean I guess I say relatively new but it has been in the last four or five years yeah um, we don't we're I, pursuing resi in some of those yeah um, we're just a little bit concerned that our restaurant is a little too idiosyncratic idiosyncratic for that sort of thing okay and a lot of our guests are older than me, which I'm 54. So we're not going after the demographic that's mm-hmm. necessarily on the phone all the time. You're retaining. You're not looking to add new people. No, we are. Yeah. We're looking to add anybody yeah. who oh, wants yeah, right. to come. Everybody is, right? Um, <laughs> but I'm just saying that the bulk of our demographic is not the person, not the techno, yeah. you know, the hipster, yeah, you know, millennial. And, and I was really interested about this question. I get really interested with this question with people who have been su- successful for so long because you came into this market before these technologies mm-hmm. existed and you were successful without them. And can you stay successful without leveraging them? I think you can. And it's interesting to see people like yourself who have that reputation, who have been, um, you know, who are veterans of the industry and how you, how you adapt to technology. If you choose not to, uh, do you think that you will ad- adopt more things in the future or do you like where you're at? I mean, the thing about it that our reservation system that I like is that when you call here, you talk to a real person Mm. and you can ask real questions. If there's something on the open table or the resi um, platform that's not answered, you have a, you have an opportunity to bond Mm. and that's going to be your first experience with our restaurant is with someone who doesn't have anything to do with our restaurant or with a computer screen. Mm -hmm. And again, it just kind of goes against my old fashioned need to connect with a person. Mm-hmm. I like to talk to people. Me too. My wife yeah. wants to do everything by computer. She wants to order a pizza yeah. on the computer. But I like to talk to people and get like, what's the feel of that? What's the vibe? Ask them a question. Hey, I'm coming into town for the weekend. Where can I stay? Mm-hmm. What else should I do? And the woman that we have um, who answers our phone is great. And people love to talk to her. And, you know, she sometimes spends five or 10 minutes on the phone 
with guests, um, getting them all situated mm-hmm. and they come in and they want to meet her. They want to know who she is. And, um, I just think that's, uh, you know, a part of the package for mm-hmm. us. Cool. Cool stuff. All right. So the last question, it's a big one. You ready for it? Uh, if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, your restaurants will be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom, things you know to be true to leave behind for your legacy. What would those three things be? Have fun. Work hard, make it taste good, or make memories. Make, make memories. memories. That's my I deal. Like I like it. Chef Margo, thank you so much uh, for going long. And uh, you were just providing so much value. And you have a great story, and I love your values. And um, it, it was just so much fun sitting here with you. Uh, we wrap up every episode by calling somebody out. So, who's one independent restaurant operator, somebody you admire in this industry and you believe needs to be made an example of? I think Claire at Dozen Bakery would be fantastic. Awesome. And let the folks at home know, uh, if we want to connect with you, what's the best way to connect? Uh, to, to learn, to follow what you're doing on Instagram maybe, or uh, just to maybe come join your team? Yeah, um, Margo Cafe on Instagram. Check it out. All right. Sounds good. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to sit here with me, to share your story, uh, to share what you know to be true about success in this industry. There is no questioning, Margo. You are unstoppable (laughs) thanks eric appreciate you having me cheers and there's another episode wrapped up here at restaurants unstoppable a great one and i'm actually sitting here uh in the the office of tipsy melbourne australia and uh a quick hello from the folks over at tipsy And I just, <laughs> I just want to take this moment to, to tap, tip my hat to these guys and say thank you for hosting me. Uh, you guys can go back to doing what you're doing. Thank you for that. Uh, and <laughs> uh, they were truly great. And uh, I was able to uh, record a few episodes out here. And I uh, just wanted to make sure I acknowledge them for being so great. Uh, and when I came out here, uh, one of the first things they had me do uh, was give a uh, speech or a little talk on uh, passion and what I've learned about passion interviewing so many uh, successful restaurant tours and one of the biggest lessons I, I have learned on passion is that I don't believe you go out and you find your passion I, I, I believe you know you're given your passion by going out there and just working and uh, organically people telling you what you're good at and life will leave you little cues uh, and clues so uh, and I think the reason why I'm bringing this up now is because I, what a perfect ex- example with Chef Margot uh, she didn't know that she was going to make hospitality and food and beverage her life, but she got little hints from people that she kept on touching throughout her life saying, you know, you're really good at this. Maybe you should consider, you know, making this your career and going to school. And the, the really cool part about this is that uh, once she had figured out that, that, that this is her passion because she was getting the acknowledgement uh, that she is good at this and this is where she does belong, she has made it her legacy to, or her, her intent is to make her legacy helping other people find their passion. And I think that's what it's really all about. And so point being, get out there, tell people what they're good at and you can really, you know, you can potentially... Uh, help somebody find their, their path, their passion. It, it's so powerful. And there is a bunch of other really big lessons in today's conversation. I believe uh, the, some of the biggest ones, obviously, you know, just be careful with who you make your partner. Uh, you know, don't rush into partnerships, but do take the leap into opening the business because uh, that was one good thing that came from this partnership. Uh, he pushed her he, to just get started and that is huge. Also, the idea of Treat guests that are walking into your restaurant uh, as if they're walking into your home. I think that's just a really simple way of looking at 
how we should be treating our people. All right, headed back to Thailand tomorrow. Uh, can't wait to get back on to working on the platform. A lot going on there, and it's not too late to share your ideas with me. Anything I can do to make that platform better, always I can serve you. Uh, let me know. Shoot me an email, Eric at Restaurant Unstoppable. Uh, Instagram, Eric Cacciatore. Twitter, Eric Cacciatore. Facebook, slash Restaurant Unstoppable. Tell me who you want to hurt, learn from, and you know I'll, I'll get out there, and, I, and I'll make it happen for you. And uh, just, yeah, keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. Uh, thank you all so much for sticking around this long. It was a long one. I appreciate it. And until next time, peace out.